I only want to begin by quickly noting that I'm just sorry that I cannot react. I liked so much your speech, so my proposal would be F off. Yeah. What I have to say and let's debate. Yeah, we we'll debate later. Yeah, later. Yeah, okay. Now, I have, as usually, too many things to say, so let me begin. Uh, it will be very simple, elementary, repeating some stuff, but the basic message, I hope, will come true. The claim I want to defend is that Hegel is the philosopher most open to the future precisely because he explicitly prohibits any project of how our future should look. As he says, we all know it, towards the end of uh, uh, the preface to his Rechtsphilosophie, like the Owl of Minerva, which takes off at dusk, philosophy can only paint grey on grey. It can only translate into a grey, lifeless conceptual scheme, a form of life which already reached its peak and is entering its decline, becoming grey itself. Now, the first thing to note here, and it's rarely noted, maybe you know others, I only know my philosophical opponent, but otherwise friend Robert Pippin, who noticed this, that if Hegel was not a complete idiot, and let's hope he wasn't, then he knew that this has to hold also for his Rechtsphilosophie, that what he is presenting them, his, let's call it, ideal state with three estates, constitutional monarchy, it's not his vision. He is painting grey on grey there, trying to recapture a form of life which is already uh, disintegrating. So, to put it very brutally, this is why we should reject all those readings of Hegel, I think, maybe I'm wrong, which see in his thought an implicit model of a future society reconciled with itself, leaving behind the alienations of modernity. I call them, ironically, the we are not yet there Hegelians like Marx was the first, and I'm here on Hegel's side. Marx thought Hegel got it right, the scheme of alienation, reconciliation, but he didn't yet see that it's only through the proletarian revolution that this will happen. Then we have, of course, Fukuyama. Hegel was right, but it's only today's liberal capitalism. There are even some, I go to the lowest of the lowest, this new age uh, singularity thinkers who think only with this Neuralink global machine where our minds will immediately communicate what Hegel had in mind as absolute knowing will become, uh, will finally become a realist. And unfortunately, my first target, uh, I hear disagree, although I'm personally in good relations with her, with Judith Butler, who this sum summer, I think, in a speech on Hegel, also provides a vision of this. We are not yet there, Hegel. Of course, the full vision of this is Lukács Geschichte und Klassenbewusstsein. Hegel just didn't see that what he, in a mystified way, called uh, 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 absolute spirit is a, a, a proletariat as the subject-object of history. So here is a short paragraph from her speech. In his phenomenology of spirit, Hegel shows us that we are not simply solitary creatures. 
disconnected from one another, although he, Hegel, knows very well that we sometimes see ourselves precisely in that way. And so on and so on. I explode here. I'm a, I almost have a Goebbels reaction. Like, because first, one always has to ask these naive questions. Who exactly is that idiot who says that we are not sim- that we are simply solitary creatures disconnected from one another? The only philosopher I know who says this is Hegel himself. He posits this as a starting point, which he then, of course, undermines through its imminent self-deployment. But what's the problem here? What does Judith Butler miss here? Uh, Let me recall the passage from Phenomenology in which, after analyzing the infinite judgment of phrenology, Der Geist ist ein Knochen, the spirit is a bone. Hegel draws the parallel, I'm sorry, everybody knows this passage, with the double function of penis. As Hegel puts it, in the same way that in penis, nature ironically put together the highest and the lowest, insemination and urination, in the same way Der Geist ist ein Knochen is the most vulgar materialism, but also the speculative, the highest speculative truth. Where does Judith Butler get it wrong? Hegel's point here, it's such a simple point, but many people don't get it. It's not that, ah, if we are vulgar materialist atomists, we see only urination. A true speculative thinker sees also insemination. No, Hegel's point is that you have to begin with urination with the vulgar point. The, the only way to the hate is to make the wrong choice. This is the immanent temporality of Hegel's logic. And this has important uh, political consequences. For example, in Hegel's critique of uh, 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 terror in, after French Revolution, his point, my God, is not Oh, French went too far. Instead of building an organic community of freedom, they have chosen abstract negativity of terror. No, his, his point is not the usual liberal critique of French Revolution. Yes, 89, but again against 93. You have to go through terror. Only the terror opens up the way for later maybe, it's not clear, uh, reconciliation. And I think that's what uh, uh, Judith Butler doesn't see. She acts as if there are idiots who think we are individualists, blah, blah, but we should be wise and see how we are all together and so on. No, now you will say, but nonetheless, at the end, Hegel sees a reconciliation. I don't have time, I have only limited. No, she doesn't see any reconciliation. At the end, what you get, it's important, the last page of Phenomenologie des Geistes. Hegel said the whole history is Calvaria, Calvarie des Geistes. It's just a succession of horrors. And it's totally wrong to read Hegel as if, but at the end, where? Show me in Hegel that happy picture at the end. At the end of even Hegel's Rechtsphilosophie is the necessity of war. 
to undermine any idea that we will have this happy bürgerliche society, reconciliation, no, necessity of war. So, uh, uh, let me go very quickly. I found one philosopher, we should have invited her, but she's not yet known in Europe, a very intelligent and to be a sexist, I'm sorry, very nice lady from Puerto Rico, who teaches, I don't know where, uh, Rocio, not Rocco, Rocio, it's a woman's name, Rocio Zambrana, who precisely with reference to Adorno, proposed a wonderful reading of Hegel, where she rejects this pseudo-Hegelian notion of immanent critique. Uh, She contrasts this idea of immanent critique to, I quote her, a conception of critique that, rather than being guided by normative criteria that can be distilled from the socio-historical phenomenon at hand, is attuned to, following Cadorno, the undiminished persistence of suffering that remains in a world which could be paradise here and now, but can become hell itself tomorrow. So, uh, uh, Zambrana sees in Hegel uh, an ongoing critique which remains vigilant of the inversions of any normative criteria immanent to social reality. Her lesson is that when you, she knows what Habermas and others is saying, you need uh, some normative criteria to criticize something, but she thinks that at the end, these normative criteria also have to fall. Uh, So, uh, quote again from her, the object of critique not only remains the modes of suffering distinctive to a given form of life, but also the normative commitments implicated in these forms of suffering. Uh, uh, So, I think that we should be critical here. For example, I always dismissed, I prefer Stalin to them, those Trotskyite critics of October Revolution, you know, with this dream, at the beginning it had emancipatory potential, but them, and then comes their science fiction dream in the worst form. If only Lenin were to survive three years more and make the pact with Trotsky, we would have gotten what? I don't No, but certainly this very criteria by means of which Trotsky judged Stalin are for me absolutely unconditionally uh, implicated in it. Now I want to turn to the big target of my critique, uh, uh, to this my title refers, Robert Brandon's mega, over 700 pages, book called The Spirit of Trust. A reading of Hegel, I will not go into details, I will just, uh, of Hegel's phenomenology, focus on the central notion, which is from Brandom, that of forgiving recollection. Deployed in uh, the chapter of, on Geist spirit in Hegel's phenomenology. The gap that separates the acting subject and its severe judge is there, 
according to Brandom, overcome through their reconciliation when not only the agent confesses his sin, but the judge also confesses the unilaterality of his own position, his participation in what he condemns. Evil is also the gaze which sees evil everywhere around itself. Uh, first, I think that this notion of forgiving recollection is very useful today to make a politically incorrect mistake if this is very good critique of today's political correctness. Politically correct critiques of where they see racism, anti-feminism, never see the evil in their own gaze. It's always absolute judgment. You make one mistake, you say one wrong word, you are out forever. But, back to Brandon, there are nonetheless, I think, clear limits to his, not Hegel's, notion of forgiving recollection. To be brutal in a simplified way, can we also recollectively forgive Hitler? And if the answer is no, is this because Hitler cannot be, in this sense, forgiven? or because we ourselves are not yet at the high enough level of ethical reflection to do it. The only way to avoid regression to a position of beautiful soul is to endorse the second option, that our castigation of Hitler as evil must be a reflexive determination of the evil that persists in ourselves. And uh, this... This way to read, recollect, uh, uh, to, to read uh, 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 forgiving recollection is very, uh, with regard to Hitler, it's very popular today. This is even in, as beloved American, our President Trump would have put it, even in this shithole of a country, he used it for other days. Here in Slovenia, or all the right-wingers there, they say, yeah, yeah, Hitler made mistakes, but he should be recollectively, uh, recollectively forgiven because he was fighting, although in a wrong, exaggerated way, uh, uh, the true enemy, big capital. It was just that this enemy uh, was for him embodied in Jews, which in a way was wrong, but even there they say, but Jews did control many finances and so on and so on and so on. So uh, the problem here is this one. It is uh, uh, what would be totally non-Hegelian, would be to, to draw a distinction between, how should I put it, crimes that can be recollectively forgiven, you did a mistake, but you, if you, we look at it from your context, you meant it good, and like real evil where something like this is not possible. Brandom is aware of this, and here is his answer, quote, whose fault is it that the doing or some aspect of it is unforgivable, the doer or the forgiver, is the failure that of the bad agent or that of the bad recollector. Uh, so, if we cannot pardon somebody in this recollective way, uh, who is to blame? And he's quite consequent, Brandon here, and says that, I quote, 
we should also acknowledge at least equal responsibility on the part of the unsuccessful forgiver. I ask a totally naive question. Does this mean that when we condemn Hitler, we should also say, yes, but we didn't reflect enough, our stance is, uh, uh, or to quote uh, Brandon, one must trust that this recollective, uh, recognitive failure too, like the failure of the original sin, will be successfully forgiven by future assessors. So again, without mentioning these sharp cases, his idea is that if we cannot forgive some historical event, it means that we are implicated in it, and then he does something horrible, Brandon. He moves into this uh, spurious infinity. He said this means that our judgment is also relative. In the future, there will be a broader perspective where they will know how to recollectively forgive it, and so on and so on. And for a true Hegelian against Brandom, there are other problems here. For example, uh, what about recollection, which is not forgiving, forgiving, but even harsher? What if in a certain society it's normal, I use the traditional examples, to do clitorodectomy, to have slaves, and even the victims more or less agree with it. But now we come and not only don't forgive it to them, but make a harsh, uh, make a harsh uh, judgment. Now, what would have been the Hegelian solution to this deadlock. I think that, again, we have to introduce logical temporality, the temporality of will have been. That Hegel is the great thinker of a truth which is decided retroactively. And here is a nice quote. Here I agree with him from Brandon. Concrete practical forgiveness involves doing things to change what the consequences of the act turn out to be. One might trust one's successors to make it the case that one's inadvertent revelation, one's sacrifice or the decision to go to war was, was, worth, was worthwhile. So his idea is that you do something bad, but the meaning of your act is decided retroactively. It can be redeemed. First, why doesn't Brandom here mention the opposite case, which is the truly Hegelian one, which I like? The problem is not a bad guy does something bad, but without knowing, he leads to a, it leads to a good result. And I met in Israel some radical Zionists who rehabilitate Hitler in this way. They said he was bad, but objectively, without Holocaust, there wouldn't have been a state of Israel. So recollective recognition, their way. Uh, Hegel enjoys much more the opposite case. Somebody does something with the highest intentions and so on, and everything goes wrong. I think that what we need to introduce here is a notion which you don't find it literally in Hegel, but I think is Hegelian in spirit. Bernard Williams wrote a book on it. He called it Moral luck. You do something and it depends on 
the outcome of how it will be judged. The most beautiful example I found on, of this is Kant's political philosophy, where he says every revolution is to be condemned because you overthrow a legal power. But he says if the revolution wins and imposes a new legal order, then you are again prohibited to rebel against it. If it, if it succeeds, its immanent ethical status, uh, status uh, changed, uh, changes. Kant says this openly. I will not bore you with it. I will just say that uh, the problem with Brandom I see here is that although he admits this retrospective necessity. Brandom reads Hegel beautifully here. He Hegelian development is not linear, but it's things take a certain term and retroactively an event which is in itself contingent creates the con its own necessary conditions. Things retroactively become uh, necessary. But where I don't trust Trump, uh, sorry, Trump, Trump, <laughs> I trust. No, no, I have uh, a month, uh, five, ten minutes, just. Um, ten. Ten, perfect. Okay, very quickly. You know where Trump is almost a Hegelian? He did something lately which I really admire. I'm so tired of this stupidity that Trump is lying all the time. No, he's true in a horrible sense. I hate him. Subver subversive character is that he also tells the truth where you don't expect it. A week ago, he was criticized for defunding a uh, post office. And you know, these intelligent liberal critics wanted to catch him that he's really doing this to have less them. And they asked him, why are you doing this? this? You know what Trump said? It's obvious. I want less Democrats to vote. You know, like, he says the truth precisely when you would have expected it would hurt him. But let me go on. Uh, so back to Brandom. Uh, 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 Brandom uh, 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 has this, and I don't think this is uh, uh, immanent to Hegel. Brandom has this trust in future, in the sense that, okay, I am now reading Hegel, the way Hegel was reading past philosophy, trying to introduce meaning into totality, uh, retrospectively uh, uh, totalizing it, and so on. I am doing this to Hegel to make it actual for our time, but somebody else undoubtedly will be doing this for me, and so on, and so on. But why I think that what Hegel means with Versöhnung is something much more radical. It's not that even if we don't find peace now, we have to have trust that with further progress there will be a total synthesis and so on and so on. No, it's uh, the, the Hegelian motto is rather what I would have called again against Brandom, the spirit of distrust. Hegel's basic procedure, and just look at his philosophy of history or whatever, it's always the same story. 
something begins well with the best intentions and then everything goes wrong. You have a revolution, you have terror then. You have, in Phenomenology des Geistes, when he speaks of medieval times, you have uh, uh, serving the king, honor, it turns into flattery. One thing you can be always sure with Hegel is don't trust any ethical project. It's not that we shouldn't do them. We don't have a choice, but the only way to gain something is through the failure and then in a, in a reaction to the failure. So for me, the true forgiveness is not Hegelian, it's not this trust into the future, but it is precisely this trust that it's some future things will turn out better and so on and so on. No, Hegel, that's why Hegel, I think you know that, I quote this all the time, I think uh, Michel Foucault wrote about Deleuze, un jour peut-être le siècle sera Deleuzean, one day maybe the century will be Deleuzean. Our century now is Hegelian, why? Because we are again and again witnessing these reversals. Not only is the 20th century out of scope for Hegel, Hegel would have loved it. He would have analyzed how, remember, second part of 19th century in Europe, not elsewhere, time of progress, gradually women got the voting right, retirement funds, health, it got better. Then you get World War I total catastrophe. Hegel would have, I can see him also, all, almost in an orgasmic intellectual effort, demonstrate, or October Revolution, it began nice, global emancipation, ah, a certain comrade from Gruzia, Stalin comes and gives another turn to it, and even today, Hegel is never a guy of happy ending. He would have been immediate. Fukuyama is the greatest anti-Hegelian you can imagine. Hegel, the, Hegel's definition is when a certain movement tendency like global capitalism wins, it self-divides. It splits, it's the end. So I think that uh, this is where we should look. And now if you, uh, where should look for, where, at a Hegelian, how we should look at our contemporary times. These imminent reversals of things, it's really what the Englishmen have this wonderful term for verkehrte Welt, topsy-turvy world. This reversal, and then how only in a repetition later as a, as a, as a, as a collateral damage, as we say today, maybe something good will, maybe something good will emerge. So, three minutes. I want just to make a point. Three minutes, yes, but in a dialectical sense, not linear time and so on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, what I already published, maybe even in Slovenia, I'm confused. I think that. Hegel also offers the best way to think COVID. No, idiots, if you suspect that some of your friends are idiots, tell them, I think that Hegel is a rational thinker where everything is systematized, all history leads to human progress, and so Hegel cannot think something like COVID. He can. 
Because first Hegel has, Hegel is much more autonomous in the sense of admitting the autonomy of nature than Marx. Marx is too much productivist. For Marx silently always presupposes nature is out there to be exploited productively by us. For Hegel, nature is absolutely its spirit in its otherness, absolute externality. Uh, uh, an asteroid can hit Earth, and it's a wonderful dialectical synthesis of necessity and contingency. From the standpoint of nature, it would be necessary. We can even probably measure when it will hit Earth. But from the standpoint of human history, it's contingent in the sense of it has no deeper meaning, punishment, or whatever. And I think it's the same with COVID. What would have been Hegel's reaction to COVID? Not just this pessimism, oh, we just we see how helpless we are and so on. As already developed somewhere, I think that Hegel would be intrigued by something else. What if today's formula of der Geist ist ein Knochen is der Geist ist ein Virus? That is to say, it shocked me when I read this. It's not a joke. Look at the top, top, measured by their own standards. Uh, uh, cognitivist, I wouldn't call them philosophers, thinkers today, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, their explicit theory, I'm not reading between the lines, is that uh, mind, our thinking, our symbolic order, is a virus. It's not an organic part of our identity. It's a parasitic entity which makes us do crazy things, act against our interest, an idea obsesses you, it makes you ruin yourself, and so on. That in this strict sense of a parasitic entity, that's the whole point of Dawkins' notion of mem, like genes, mems, uh, that our mind works as a virus, and now I'm getting closer to my terrain, uh, Jacques Lacan knew this, when he says the big other is parasitizing of us. There is no harmonic uh, 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 continuity between human, animal, and the symbolic order. It's a parasitic entity. So, I think that in this sense, our future will be very interesting, because all the big struggles that we have today are viral struggles. Our mind is a virus, and with crazy ideologies, uh, uh, false scientific ideology, religious fundamentalism, it is winning, destroying us. The biological virus, not just COVID-19. Wait a little bit, there will be others. In five years, I predict, at least ten from now, COVID will be, as Bruno Latour said, a, a modest dress rehearsal for what is coming. And, of course, an old Marxist metaphor. Capital is a virus. It's a virus in the sense of a virtual entity which, like a virus, just in an expanded way reproduces itself and doesn't care for the price we pay. So, yes, our century will be Hegelian. Thank you very much.